I'm not making this up. Who has a safety deposit box full of money and six passports and a gun? Who has a bank account number in their hip? I can tell you the license plate numbers of all six cars outside. I can tell you that our waitress is left-handed and the guy sitting up at the counter weighs 215 pounds and knows how to handle himself. I know the best place to look for a gun is the cab of the gray truck outside. And at this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Now, why would I know that? How can I know that and not know who I am? This is the Bourne Retrospective Series by Now Playing. Jason Bourne, welcome to the program. Hosted by Jacob. We are all trained to kill, but he was the best. Stuart. He's seen things. He knows things. And Arnie. They don't make mistakes. They don't do random. There's always an objective, always a target. This podcast may contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. Is it all let me notice? You never wanted to before. Listener discretion is advised. This is not a drill, soldier. We're clear on that. This is a live project. You're a go. We'll see you on the other side. Today we're discussing the born identity. The real one. Yes. Starring Matt Damon, Franca Potenta, Chris Cooper, Clive Owen, Brian Cox, directed by Doug Lyman. Come on, no Julia Stiles? <laughs> no, she is not top build. And I honestly, the director on the commentary said he cannot pronounce the last name of Wambosi. And so I'm not going to try either. <laughs> this is Arnie, your born podcast host. Shiza, it's Stuart in L.A. And this is the host you liked better when you thought I was dead, Jacob. Well, I liked you better when you had your memories at the very least. Now it's hard to <laughs> I have to remind you. No, I'm glad I've lost those memories of last week. We're getting into the real films now, the real born identity. Yeah, but I just keep having to remind you that, yes, you did recommend Children of the Corn 1 through 7. I don't know. I'm going to have to look at this laser thing in my neck to see if that's true. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's not true. But Born Identity. Yes, this is the one that people, I think, in this decade anyway, are going to think of first when they hear those words. Robert Ludlum is dead by the time this movie comes out. Although he was a producer. He was semi-involved. But it is a move away from the book of 1980 and into a new direction. Arnie, do you know why they decided of all the times to reboot this, that the millennium was it, that we can take this Cold War story and make it relevant <laughs> 20 years later? They'd been trying for a long time and it was Ludlum saying no. Everybody wanted to make it a big action film. He wanted something at least true to the spirit of his book. Obviously, this is not true to the plot of his book. It's closer than you might think, but yeah, a lot of changes. I will say this. When I think of The Born Identity, this first one with Matt Damon, as opposed to that one with Richard Chamberlain, you know, I feel like Born Identity, it, it was a, a new phase of those action films. When you're saying, Arnie, that the Ludlum wanted this to be more true to the spirit of his book, I do feel like with The Born Identity, you know, Nolan's... Batman, Daniel Craig's James Bond. It felt like action 
films, moving away from the camp, moving away from the puns, going grittier, more real world. And I do feel like Born Identity kind of started that trend. It was at least the first action film that really made that impression on me. The other thing that I was thinking about in this time period was noir was big. You know, thanks to Tarantino, we had had a lot of movies that messed with timeline and memory and identity, like Memento. You mentioned Christopher Nolan, and we also had, you know, Usual Suspects, who was Kevin Spacey really. There was a way to play this story in which that it would be very in keeping with the spirit of other noir movies coming out at the time. But I wouldn't say that this is a very Tarantino-esque film that we've got. No, what happened was this director, Doug Lehman. Yeah, I saw Swingers. I'm surprised the director of Swingers is doing The Born Identity. And he does like Tarantino because I saw Go, his second film, and it is very much like a Pulp Fiction. Well, you asked why this came out in 2002. The reason was while doing his press junket for Swingers, he was in an airport and needed a book to read. And he went in and saw The Born Identity and said, I remember really liking this in high school. And so he picked it up and read it again. And after Swingers was a hit, he was asked, what film would you like to do next? And he said, I'd like to do The Born Identity. And it took five full years, two years to get the rights and to convince Ludlum that he was going to do it right. He had to meet with Ludlum personally and get that sign off. And then a year of script, two years of production. And yeah, he made go in between. But this is really... Lehman was the driving force behind all of this and why it came out when it did and everything. And to keep in mind that five years, one thing I found very interesting with all these bonus features is this movie was, of course, mostly made before 9-11. And so it underwent some changes, some reshoots and things, especially at the end, because they felt like instantly when 9-11 happened, this movie was dated. The movie they'd made was a relic. Interesting. I feel like there's many things here that became more topical, but they couldn't have maybe known that be coming out so close. I think this was supposed to come out in September 2001, and it got delayed for other reasons and came out summer 2002. It was well over its deadline. And yeah, one of the things was they had originally scripted a big ending. I mean, it's not even in the film, so we could talk about it here out of sequence. With a giant exploding gas station and all of this. Well, Universal said, you guys have spent way too much money and gone way too long. You're just going to end. And so the end of the movie was actually the farmhouse. Wow. <laughs> okay. After the farmhouse, there was a talkie scene and no more action. Because they weren't given the budget. And the screenwriters were like... It's kind of an ironic statement because these screenwriters must never have been at a party with Michael Bay. They said, well, after 9-11, we just knew there will never be explosions in movies again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember all those predictions. People were like, I'm never getting on an airplane again. We're never going to pay attention to silly news because now we know what's important. Ha, 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 ha. They ended up, after doing test screenings, Universal had faith in the project, gave them more money, they did 10 days of reshoots, got the ending we have on this film. They also filmed an entire bookend, beginning and end. They were afraid this would be seen as such a relic. They added a scene at the beginning of Born in Greece passing out, and then a scene for the very end with 
Bourne and Brian Cox, where Brian Cox is like, we've been looking for you for two years, thus really driving home all this took place before 9-11 when it would be relevant. Yeah, I actually saw that version on the DVD that I had. It gave you the option for the exciting new <laughs> version, which I got to say, not very exciting at all. Those scenes, gratefully, were not in the theatrical, and that is the one that you should watch if that's not the one you watched. <laughs> yeah, and I did see this when it came out in theaters, and for this viewing, I also watched that theatrical. I didn't know there was a extended cut of this film. I didn't either, and I have the Blu-ray. It had it as bonus scenes, but it did not have it integrated into the cut. But I have a funny story about this movie with Amnesia. <laughs> the sequel started coming out. They were doing some promotion for it. It was probably six to 12 months before the sequel. And I was going to be up all night working on my computer. I was a bit of a computer gearhead. And so what I did was, you know, when I format hard drives, there's long periods of nothingness. I watch movies. So I decide I'm going to rent The Born Identity. And I'm going to, you know, see the first one before the second one. And it starts with the guy shooting and falling in the water. I'm like, wow, they really took that opening from a different movie. And then there's the fight with the cops in the park. I'm like, what? I'd seen it before. (laughs) I had rented the movie six months earlier, watched the whole thing, went into amnesia, forgot I'd even watched it, and then rented it again. (laughs) That's not exactly a glowing praise. I don't know that that's necessarily damning either. I mean, some things are made just to be light and entertaining. I do think that Robert Ludlum's book, not a serious book, not an important book. It was basically written as a big yarn to captivate you. I I think that's all that it has to do. I don't need for this version to be the best spy movie of all time. I just want it to be diverting. I have seen it twice before i did eventually realize i'd seen it before it's the only movie i've ever watched not realizing i'd seen it then i watched it for a third time for this series but despite that i am coming to the series as the fan of the trilogy it was just one mistake (laughs) (laughs) you've come around and i think everyone did i definitely feel like this is a series you can see it in the box office with each installment it got more and more popular at least until hawkeye took over (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah, Hawkeye's going to come later, but Matt Damon, like, where was he in his career? Again, when I'm thinking about trends in action films, which I'm apt to do for whatever reason, we had our Stallones and Schwarzeneggers in the 80s. We had our martial artist in the 90s with Seagal, Jackie Chan. Like, what was the new millennium of action star? I don't think I would have picked Matt Damon. I don't think that they were thinking action star here. I think that, first of all, if you were saying Matt Damon, you were probably saying it in conjunction with Ben Affleck. Yes. Who was also getting his action cred around this time with Daredevil. (laughs) You can say that if you want. Cred. I don't know if that's cred. (laughs) Crud, maybe. (laughs) Yes. But they were trying to differentiate themselves. They both came onto the scene. They were both working actors that had worked independently, but they had made the name for themselves and won their Oscars by collaborating on the script and starring in Goodwill Hunting about five years before. And by that point, I think Matt Damon was working a lot with Miramax because Miramax took a chance on them and that script. He paid them back by doing a lot of their projects and Miramax projects tended to be prestige films. So you would see him in things like Talented Mr. Ripley. He also worked with Kevin Smith. He was in Dogma. He kind of owed his career to Kevin Smith because Kevin Smith helped produce Goodwill Hunting and paved the way at Miramax. I knew Matt Damon because of Kevin Smith. I mean, he was in 
chasing Amy in a very small role. And Kevin Smith kept talking about Goodwill Hunting, which was part of the reason I saw that in theaters. But by this point, I mean, yeah, he had Dogma, Mr. Ripley, Rounders. With the exception of Bagger Vance and all the pretty horses, I think I'd seen all of his films in theaters. I thought he was the talented one. I'll just go ahead and lay it out there. I always thought Affleck was the Flash, the one that would hang out with J-Lo and kind of get by on his celebrity. Damon seemed like a serious actor, which is not to say that I thought he was a great actor, but I thought he was trying to be a great actor. And I think you can see that. Even though some of these movies you mentioned are not great films, he was working with great filmmakers. He was really trying to win another Oscar. Yeah, that was definitely the perception. I remember Saturday Night Live skit about that. But I... (laughs) I think things have panned out a bit differently. I think Affleck's proven, I mean, as a director and a producer, that he's more than a pretty face. Yeah, he finally matured is what happened, I think. I think he finally got over the celebrity and kind of went back to maybe the craft of writing and acting. But I'll agree, Matt Damon was my favorite for a long period there. I mean, he still, to this day, has made a lot of movies I really like, but he's never lost the ability to make fun of himself. I mean, the fact that he cameoed in Eurotrip just has always solidified his cred in my book. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Yeah, I mean, he does have a sense of humor, and I do like that about him. He had done one kind of action-y thing. He had appeared with a whole bunch of peers in Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, he, that's not an action film. It's a fun movie, but <laughs> Linus did not exactly get into the fist fights. No, and he was far from the best character in that, but he had wet his toe. He had kind of dabbled into where he's headed here, but I agree. This is not who I would cast. If I had just read this book, and I did, you can go hear my review over at Books and Nachos, in my mind is not Matt Damon. You know, the movie he'd done at this point that to me, felt closest to this was a movie I really love called Rounders. You know, that's kind of still a similar type of suspense, thriller kind of thing. He does more ass-kicking here. He does more poker-playing there. Yeah, he was just another goodwill hunting, right? I mean, he was just a genius card player or something. No, it was a crime film. And he was the good friend trying to get Ed Norton out of trouble. But I really liked that film, and Coming to this, it really isn't that much of an action film. And listening to the commentaries and everything, what Lehman calls this, what Lyman calls this, is an action, is a drama film with scenes of action, not an action film. Yeah, I agree. It's uh, the action comes later. How we think about Bourne really, I think, is more true because of the sequels than this movie. That became apparent when I finally came back to watch it for my second time a decade after I saw it on home video. I never went to the theaters. I never saw this movie until probably a couple years after it came out, close to the time the sequel came out. So Arnie, if you're the fan, you can give them the plot. Tell them about Bourne Identity. Matt Damon plays Jason Bourne, a man in the employ of the CIA. Bourne was trained as a highly skilled assassin under the Treadstone program, overseen by Alexander Conklin, played by Chris Cooper. But when Bourne's conscience won't allow him to kill an exiled African dictator in front of his children, Bourne is shot twice in the back and falls into the Mediterranean Sea. He is recovered by some fishermen, and while he has survived, he has amnesia. He knows he has all these skills, but not why or who he is. But under his skin is a laser pointer (laughs) with information about a Swiss bank account, which has money and a large number of passports. He also learns he has a home in Paris, but Treadstone is now on to him, and other agents are sent to capture or kill Bourne, who they think has gone rogue. 
So Bourne hires a German woman named Marie, played by Franca Potenta, to drive him to Paris. In Paris, Bourne is attacked in his apartment, and they flee to the home of Marie's ex-boyfriend in the French countryside. When an assassin tracks them there too, Bourne takes him down and finds out about Treadstone. He then pursues Conklin in Paris, finally getting the head of Treadstone unarmed. Conklin's words remind Bourne about his final mission, so Bourne says just to leave him alone, and he goes off to Greece to live with Marie. But Conklin's fate isn't so happy as he is killed by one of Treadstone's assassins, as his superior, CIA Deputy Director Ward Abbott, played by Brian Cox, is shuttering Treadstone and permanently retiring Conklin as credits roll. Now, we've got to bring up the fact that, yes, we've already seen this story before, and as much as you may want to forget it, Jacob, I've got to say, <laughs> there are many things about this that have been modernized and updated. We're going to get an assassination plot on an African warlord. But I would say the basic setup here is pretty faithful both to that miniseries and to the book, starting with a body floating in the water. I agree, Stuart. They have streamlined a lot of stuff here. To do. Just from Arnie's plot summary, it, it's simpler than trying to get through that Richard Chamberlain film. He understood it. I was like, oh, he knows the relationships. I did go high level and skip a lot of beats. Yeah, but I, I feel like you hit all the major points for that Chamberlain film. I didn't know what Treadstone was doing. I didn't know they were in New York. Here, I feel like the changes they do make. Get rid of Carlos. Okay, make Treadstone the bad guys. That's smart. Guess what? When we open up with a guy floating in the ocean in a boat, it makes sense this time. There's a reason he's floating <laughs> in the ocean and that the reason he was on that boat, unlike that Chamberlain film that we're never told about. Here's the thing is, I think this follows the beats of the book. If I've never read the book. I've seen the last movie, which I understand to be close to the book. And here, we're going to the same cities. We're following the same beats. But there's a lot less intrigue. And most importantly, there's no alternate assassin who, there's no Carlos. Right. What they have decided ultimately is that the villain can be the people that Bourne works for. And that's what is, I think, the biggest substantive difference between newborn and oldborn, whether you're talking about the book or the miniseries. Those original works saw that story about a man who is frightened that he is a horrible person and over the course of time learns that he in fact never did that much wrong, was misled by other people, but basically was a good guy and can feel free to love again. This series is about a guy that's going to find out that he's pretty much a horrible person, but has the potential to be something different now. Because yes, he is suffering from bullet shot wounds to the head and to the abdomen, and he has that retrograde amnesia that we love. And that's a better story for me, is someone who was a horrible person getting amnesia and deciding that they're going to be a good person. I, I think that's better storytelling, frankly. Well, let's jump to the reveal here. Is he a horrible person? Because we're going to find out what he was doing on that boat is he's there to kill an African dictator in exile who's become a problem for the CIA. But he doesn't pull the trigger because he'd have to kill the African dictator, like the African dictator's three children. He just couldn't pull the trigger. Yeah, that's basically what it is, is that he might have killed the African dictator if the African dictator was alone on that yacht, but there is a little girl on his lap, a wife on the seat next to him, and I don't know, we don't really know enough about Jason Bourne to even say 
why that would touch him in such a way, other than the obvious human level of a man with his family feels like something that you shouldn't intervene with. You should not murder a man in front of his family. I think that's a basic we can all agree to, I hope. <laughs> but I think that's kind of what Bourne's hired to do. He's not just going to kill him in front of the family. He's going to make it look like the family killed him. That's why he's on that boat. I love later on, they're like, we could send Julia Stiles if we just wanted this guy dead. Yeah. You're there to make it look like he was killed by his own people. Right, yes. You arrange it to look like the kind of death that we want it to be. And you're invisible. No one knows who you are. And I kept waiting for, because I have that TV series we watched last week, when he has that reaction to the children, I kept thinking, oh, is there some kind of flashback where he has an Asian wife and a kid? Is, <laughs> is that what's stopping him? That never does play out in this film. Maybe we'll get it in the sequel. I don't know. I don't remember either. But it was definitely on my mind after watching that Chamberlain film. Yeah, the backstory to Jason Bourne remains largely a mystery. I mean, we will know about other false identities, but I don't think we'll ever know who the real guy is. And that's another big change, I think, from the novel is they were always trying to reassure you that deep down, there is no real assassin. There is no real killer. It was just a good guy who played the part so that the CIA could get close to a yeah. real assassin. No David Webb in this film. Yeah, no David Webb. But here, I think... Whether it's good or bad, I don't want to make that judgment call specifically, but I think that pre-9-11, a lot of people might see that the U.S. sanctioning assassins to go around and kill whoever they like might be a bad thing. I think where the movie might be considered dated after 9-11 is that was what we were planning to do with bin Laden as soon as you know we knew who had attacked us. One of the writers did say that was before 9-11 – the things being done here seemed kind of extreme. And after 9-11, they were all part of the national discourse as people were saying, this is what we should do is be right. sending in assassins. SEAL Team 6 here. And again, I'm not trying to say bad or good here, but I think public perception. I, I think the difference, though, is Wambosi, this African, is he a dictator? Like, I, I get the sense that he has something on the CIA, and that's why the CIA wants him put down is because he has information on wrongdoings on corrupt things the cia did in africa so i i do feel like the u.s or at least the cia in this film still is kind of the bad guy it, it, mm -hmm. it it's not as clear-cut like this guy is bin laden that we're going after no he is i guess blackmailing you you could say but he has information that the cia is not great yeah, whatever his crimes are, and they may be many, the movie is not over once he is dead. The movie is over once the evil of the CIA, or specifically Black Ops Treadstone, is confronted. And so we have to understand that we are the villain, that the CIA's secret society of killers is the real threat here. And that is far removed from Ludlum. I mean, I don't think Ludlum ever saw U.S. doing bad things abroad. I don't know that I necessarily agree that the CIA are the bad guys. I'd say they're the antagonists here. They're definitely going against Bourne. But this is a movie that doesn't seem to have bad guys. I mean, the CIA, and maybe it's because I did always watch this post 9-11, they have to have 
people for wet work. You know, you've got dirty jobs and you need dirty deeds done dirt cheap. So I don't see a villain in this piece. There's no climactic battle at the end in which evil is vanquished and good triumphs. I think that changes in the future Bourne films, but here, this is the story of a journey, which is why I think it does work as drama. And that's why I feel this is more grounded, because you don't have those clear-cut villains that once you kill Conklin or whoever in this film, that that's going to be the end of it. And it's interesting watching this after Snowden. There is so much data mining in this film. And, like, I remember <laughs> watching it not thinking much of it. Now I'm like, oh, my gosh, this this is Snowden is right. CIA's evil. Look out, they're using all our information to f- track us. Well, one of the interesting things I heard about Doug Lyman is that his dad worked for the NSA. Yes. He wouldn't seem like someone that would get the job because Swingers was so funny. You know, you're <laughs> like, you want somebody that brings something to this. And he did. His dad had some kind of insider knowledge about Oliver North and the Iron Contra and that some of these characters are, in fact, based on real 80s figures. Yeah, he based all of Treadstone on his father's memoirs of investigating the NSA with Iran-Contra under Reagan. Wow. So what we're really seeing is Reagan-era politics taking place, you know, 15 years later. Mm -hmm. But if you have any conspiracy theorist in you at all, you're, you're of course sitting around like, yes, of course they're having evil deals in back rooms. Yeah, I agree. Whether you know much about the history, that may not be of interest to you. I think we're all just cynical enough about government today that this is non-controversial. To say that there is a black ops organization doing bad is not going to be a threat. But you're right, Arnie. Uh, Bad guys is probably not as accurate as to say antagonist. In this world, all the lines are gray, including Bourne. He is a guy who has done things he regrets and we'll have to decide who he's going to be in the future. And it's really a great opening here. I mean, we start with basically a literal rebirth. He's in the water. He's pulled out. He is being reborn here. You know, the born identity. Yeah. No, they made that pretty clear. It's it's not subtle. <laughs> yeah, I always figured that's what it yeah. was. <laughs> yeah, Ludlum was real proud of that. He dropped that a couple times in the book. It's not that it's a, a bad thing to use. It's just something you don't want to overstate. It, it yeah. speaks for itself. Yes. Yeah, I don't think it is overstated here, but it's here. And it helps us because he's coming into this as blank as a newborn babe, a newborn babe with highly trained assassin skills. But... There's no way you can't like Jason Bourne, especially when played by Matt Damon. I think Matt Damon is tremendous at playing the perplexed nice guy, you know? I like him in other movies, too. I think The Informant is one of his better roles ever, but there's just so many movies where he's, like, playing catch-up, and it suits him very well. So you got the pretty boy face, the charming attitude, and he has no memory, so he has no bad background. We may not have bad guys, but here we have a good guy, even if he was made good by two slugs in the back and failing memory. Uh, all American is what I think about him, is that wholesome, you know, it's Private Ryan, right? I mean, he's the guy that we're all going to go fight to save. He is the icon of of American idealism. And so, yeah, you can never think too much bad if the character is being played by Matt Damon, or rather that can be used sneakily. We assume that he's got good qualities and then we find out, oh my God, he's a murderer, like Ripley. But 
I mean, there is something fresh-faced. He looks young, and I guess he was a lot younger here, but it's that youthful look that throws you off, too, that this kid is all of a sudden going to bust out some ninja moves is going to surprise you. Yeah, yeah. It, it's hard to believe he's 32 in this movie, but... He's 32 in this? Yeah! Wow. I thought he was like 24. He looks very young. Yeah, he's a few years older than me, so he does not look it, though. He definitely has the baby face, and man, he did tone up. I mean, he spent five months with a diet and workout regimen to get muscular, and they show that off pretty early. He's doing the chin-ups and everything on the boat, and he definitely has the physique and the skills to pull off this role. It it may be a drama film with some action, but he trained like an action star. We have a lot of streamlining here. We don't need to go to Port Noir and have a drunken doctor make friends with him and spend a lot of time with kids. But we do have a, a laser pointer this time being removed from his hip, giving a Zurich bank account. That's a huge thing. Yeah. That is giant. Well, come on. You can have microfilm reader on in this little fishing boat. Yeah. Lehman's not a fan of James Bond-like gadgets, but he just believed nobody would even know what a microfilm is in the 21st century, <laughs> so we get a giant laser pointer that looks like a huge bullet pulled out from him. Yeah, that, it is really big. I was surprised, because I don't have a whole lot of memories of this film, but the fact that it's just a laser pointer, come on, put something smaller in there. Is that a Swiss bank account number in your pocket, or are you just happy to see me? <laughs> or in your neck. Again, I never understood why this is the way you would remember it, but I do think it's just a thing. If you're going to do Born Identity, you got to do this because this is one of the signature moves, you know? It's a nice little intriguing hint, like, what is going on? Why would you have this sewn into your body? Yeah, it, it does make it interesting. But it is so random, and all it is is the first clue to get him starting to go from city to city, country to country. It never comes back up. It's never seen again. It's just this one-time thing. And so I'll take it. I took the microfilm with the last film also. It's the one area of this entire film where I have trouble suspending disbelief, so I'll give it to it. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's what you should expect if you read the novel, and yeah, getting us to Zurich fast is what we want. Again, these feel like repeat beats, but with people that are more skilled with camera, better actors, uh, just a more committed movie. And so it feels much, much better than what took them half an hour in the miniseries we now get in half the time, and three times the quality. And even if this is a drama with some action, I think we're calling it, it feels more action-oriented than that Richard Chamberlain film. Like, when we get to Zurich, Bourne is homeless, he's sleeping on a bench, some cops are going to come and harass him. And I do feel like he just breaks out some kung fu moves and beats him up. He doesn't even know he has it. It's almost like just robotic. It just comes out in him when he's harassed by those cops. Oh, such a badass scene. I mean, one of the things that they prided this film on is... Damon very rarely had a stunt double for any of the fights. That's Damon doing the moves, and it really has a kinetic feel. It's so quick, too, you know? It's, well, it's... yeah, I don't want to diss it. I'm sure Matt Damon can kick my ass, but my point is that he's getting a lot of help <laughs> with editing here. Yes. I mean, we can all look pretty badass when you cut 20 times. I agree, and I think that the cutting, though, the editing of this adds a kinetic feel. You're right. We're, this isn't Jackie Chan. We're not going to be able to just do a long shot and have him do all these moves. They fully admitted it was throw four punches, cut, throw four punches, cut. But 
that doesn't make it not a really kick-ass scene in the film. And it's just a few seconds. The fact that he takes out these two guys in a matter of 15 seconds, that's all we get. It's more than Chamberlain ever did in that last film. Like, I feel like this is an actual spy now. Chamberlain needed this editor. He needed it yes. bad. <laughs> I mean, even when he gets to the bank, there's not going to be a big shootout here. But I feel like, oh, we have an actual safety deposit box that, again, leads to more intrigue. It's not just a piece of paper that says $15 million. It's a bunch of cash. It's six passports. There's a gun in there. And, of course, Bourne, he takes everything but that gun. That's the one thing he's leaving at the bank. I find that very interesting that he is yeah. kind of, uh, he doesn't like to use weapons. You know, it, it, I mentioned Jackie Chan a moment ago, and I find that Bourne's fighting style is actually like him. Later in this film, he's going to be using a Bic pen as a weapon against a knife. He does use guns, but it's not his first choice. Of all the stuff there, he finds the money to be more useful than the gun. He is non-violent by nature it's something treadstone beat into him yeah i think that he doesn't want to kill i think that's maybe the aversion to using firearms is that that's the last resort typically he's pretty confident that he can take people down without having to end their life and that may be part of the training or that be maybe part of his moral code but i think it helps us like him better that he's not just blowing people away particularly when he gets to the u.s consulate and he's doing stuff that i really love like hanging on the side of the building or whatever i mean i think this is the stuff that Bourne is really known for it's not that it's grandiose bond jumping out of airplane stuff they're relatively low scale action scenes couple guys getting beat up running down a few halls but the way that it's filmed and the believability by which it's filmed, by being really there on location and not a green screen room, we're just hopefully more invested. Oh, this thing is very pretty in the fact they shot in seven countries and they make the most of it. I mean, Lyman's background with cinematography really pays off here. The establishing shots are some of the most enticing I've ever seen to go to a city, and yet we see some of the back streets as well. Yeah, in my question, he goes into this consulate to get away from the cops. The, I guess he's a wanted man now after beating up two cops. He goes in there. Why do the U.S. security come for him? Did he talk to the Swiss cops and they told him what he did? I think he's marked because once he got into that bank account, it tripped Treadstone. That's how right. Treadstone finds oh, out okay. he's yes. back in action. And again, just like last week, the fact that he goes and takes his money and takes his passports, they think he's out there going rogue. They think he aborted his mission. They don't know he was shot. Again, there's no bad guys here. They're not trying to cover up his deeds so much as they think he is gone rogue and he's now wanted for that reason. It's it's honestly a big misunderstanding. It feels like Brian Cox's character, Abbott, he wants him for a different reason. There's something about congressional budgets going on, too, and like that's why he wants this Treadstone thing wrapped up. Brian Cox is sort of the money man. He's the one that has to go before a board, and we'll see it at the climax of the film, and explain all the things that they do and get approval for funds. Whereas Chris Cooper's character, Conklin, he's the one that has to make it work with the money that Brian Cox gives him. And so, yeah, he's just much more aware. You know, Abbott comes to Conklin once Wambosi is doing press, you know, and he's like, did we do this? You can see right there, he is not in on day-to-day -day operations. He knows that there's potential there, but he leaves it for Conklin to make those choices. And indeed, we're going to find out that it was born himself 
who made the decision to attack Wambozi on the yacht, that he planned the whole thing. Yeah, I didn't get initially that Brian Cox was CIA. I almost felt like he was a senator or as part of an oversight committee. Yeah, I thought he was a congressman or something. Yeah. I later realized he was CIA, but he comes at it a little bit naive. Did we do this? It doesn't feel like he used to be a Conklin and is now higher up. But yes, if we were to have a bad guy, Conklin's the one because he's lying to Abbott. You know, no, no, you didn't even want to know the details before, but it wasn't us. And then trying to contain the leak, if nothing else. I can understand why they would be distressed that an operative that was supposed to do a job disappeared and is now taking money that they have that secretly stashed. I mean, if they didn't want him to take it, they shouldn't stuck a laser in his neck. Yeah, we don't know that they're trying to kill him yet. They're just trying to catch him. But the thing about Bourne is he's so good. How do you do that without a kill shot. I mean, I think that's the challenge. But he's got this little team here. We can give a couple seconds, I suppose, to Julia Stiles. Poor girl, <laughs> always wanting to be the next big thing in the early 2000s. Save the last dance. A lot of teen movies with Freddie Prinze Jr. See, I liked her from like 10 Things I Hate About You and those kind of movies. Yeah. And so when I saw she was in this, I was shocked how minor a <laughs> character she was because I honestly believed in 2002, 2003. I mean, state in Maine. I thought she was too big an actress for this role. Well, she probably is, or at least the what they were building her up for was. But I mean, I think she wanted probably to be a part of this team. And you think that she is going to have a bigger part than she... I mean, it's a surprise. Who knows with all the rewriting and changes, maybe at one point she did. But the shock of it is, is that she's barely on screen more than Walton Goggins is. But she's a <laughs> character that gets a name. And, you know, we always see her monitoring police chatter and radio and doing all of the wiretapping kind of stuff. I was surprised when I saw Goggins working as part of Treadstone. He's only in there for about two seconds, but he's got a line. I had the exact same thing. I'm like, oh my God, it's him. We, re I first realized who the hell that guy was last year after seeing him in so much, but he's yes. here. <laughs> Julia Stiles, they didn't cut any of her scenes with that stuff. When they refilmed the ending, they wanted to bring her back and add a little bit more at the climax, but she was unavailable working on something where she hopefully had a bigger role. So they just ended up using every ounce of footage they had before and editing it in pretty seamlessly. I think that she does this the entire series, though. My memory is she's just the girl standing around in the background. I don't ever remember her doing anything in this franchise. I'll be looking for it. I hope that I'm wrong. I agree completely. That is my memory. I'm excited she's in the new one i hope they give her something more to do in the what she's still around i'm shocked that she stuck around this long i think she's in all of them wow i don't think she's in legacy i've not seen legacy but i never but i don't think she's in that one i think she's attached at the hip with matt damon okay but that's the team that, again, we don't know what they're going to do with Bourne, but we know that they have power. They can mobilize any police force that they have. And there's this great scene here in the consulate with Matt Damon scaling the building to get away. And that wall, is that even possible? Is he Spider-Man? I mean, I believe he has skills, but he seems <laughs> to be walking where there's nothing to walk. It's possible. I mean, people climb mountains. It can be done. But typically, you want some repelling gear on you just in case that foothold ah, is not as sturdy there, as it looks. 
There's snow below him. It's padded. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure he'll be fine. You know, if it were a James Bond movie, he could jump. But again, these are the games that they're playing. They're letting you know that in this world, it's less extravagant, but more realistic. And so I have to believe it's possible because it looks like it's really happening. And of course, once he gets down, this is where he meets his getaway girl, Marie. And can I just say, I am so glad they have rewritten this part. Yeah. She's like the opposite of an economics professor or whatever she was in this film. (laughs) True. We saw her inside the consulate trying to do something to get like a student visa or something. I have no idea why she was inside, only to set up the fact that she'd be outside. (laughs) Yeah, just to set her up. (laughs) My sense is, from her whole character, she's at one point referred to as a gypsy, but she's like people I've known at youth hostels. If you travel abroad, particularly in Europe, there's a whole strain of people that just kind of live off the grid, just getting by, going from country to country, and just savoring life, you know, enjoying the world. And sometimes that's great, you know, it's romantic and all that, and sometimes that means you have to beg and plead with the consulate to please not kick you out of the country. I think that's what she's doing here. But she's going to get $20,000 to drive him to Paris, and she's more trusting than I would be. I mean, if I were a female alone in Paris and this guy who's obviously wanted by the cops is offering that amount of money, it's almost too much money. It makes me more nervous that it's so much. I'd buy her character would take it, though. She seems the adventurous type. Yeah, I, I've definitely known women that have just been like, yeah, I pay this guy $2 to ride on the back of a yak for 20,000 miles. And, you know, just some people just kind of, they're nomads. They go where it, it makes sense. And she obviously needs money. Maybe she's attracted to him too. What can he do when he's on the other side of the car? She can always stop and ask him to get out. I can see why she would make the choice, even though she knows, you know, with the cop sirens going off and his pleading to get out of there, there's got to be a story here that she doesn't want to know. But I think that she's a bad egg too. Once we meet one of her lovers later in the picture, she's the one marked for being the troublemaker. I mean, I think that, (laughs) that in many instances, the shoe would be on the other foot here. But I just want to give a compliment to Franca here. Have you guys seen Run Lola Run? Yeah. No. That was her breakout. And boy, at the turn of the millennium, it felt like that was the indie movie that was going to be the next Pulp Fiction. Yeah, I remember hearing all about it. My God, you just had to see that movie. I mean, everyone had to see that movie. And I feel like its reputation has really faded over time. And, And she has all but disappeared. But she was the it girl at the time. This was a big get to get her, the red-haired woman that would run into different dimensions, I guess you'd call it, and change her story and run a little run. This was a cool thing. Cooler than Matt Damon, quite frankly. Yeah, I saw that movie when everyone was seeing that movie. I don't remember it very well. I'd like to revisit it, but I remember her being really kick-ass in it. And here, I know she's a git because she was in that film and people would have it fresh in their mind, but by the same token, she doesn't do a lot here. She gets more screen time than Julia Stiles, but she's primarily just there to stand around and go, oh my god, what did you do for most of the movie? She'll get a haircut. You know, that is true of the Marie character in general, in all forms, but I do think it's a good performance. I do feel like her chemistry with Damon is much better than anything Jacqueline Smith had with Chamberlain, and I hate to keep bringing that up. Can I just say that there's nothing in that TV movie that is done better than here? Everything here is an upgrade. (laughs) We do not ever need to bring up that miniseries again. (laughs) 
I recognize that, but it is for the for the art of comparison. Just to remind you of how bad it can be, it makes her shine all the more when you think about that movie. That yeah, she has was thrown with the same circumstance, but fortunately they cut all that rape stuff too. I mean that was a real <laughs> drag, and it was in the book too that so much of the story was predicated on her being sexually assaulted and loving Bourne for saving her from sexual assault. They don't need to do that. He's not abducting her. There's no guns pointed at her. She has made this choice freely on her own, and it allows their relationship to bloom without any kind of icky Stockholm Syndrome kind of quality to it. Well, that's, I think, why I was wondering if she was smart to get into the car with this guy, because what if he raped her? That's the biggest risk I see. Again, I I think European attitudes are a little bit different than... I don't have a problem with her character doing this, but while they're driving to Paris, she's going to find out what kind of trouble Bourne is in in a bit. But we see, I'm just going to call them the agents. Treadstone awakes all their agents to go after Bourne. And this, I have questions like, are they texted? Is this like Bucky? Is this the Winter Soldier? Are they given a password that like reactivates them? Or are they just always agents and they're just getting orders now? I think they're always agents. I think they're getting their orders in this wonderful like tech montage where we get all the overlays, all the cities. We just see them getting their call to action. But I don't think that they're Manchurian candidates. I think that they are on a job and they're all being called in at once because now they have a bigger job to do. It kind of helps the audience know what to expect. And it makes me wonder, all right, who's the most badass? I presume Clive Owen is going to be because he's the only actor that I recognize. (laughs) I do have questions about, which I guess aren't going to get answered because it seems like this varies a bit from the book. But later on, we'll find out these agents have headaches. I I always wondered, like, is there a sci-fi element here? Do they have microchips in their head? Have they been brainwashed? Or are they just trained to be, like, really good fighters? That comes up in the third born Matt Damon film. If nothing else, I guarantee we'd have to find out in the fourth one, right? Yeah, no, I do believe that how you become a Treadstone agent and the specific ways that that works, it is one of the few things that's not tied up here in this movie. I almost feel like this movie is a freestanding movie that doesn't need a sequel, but that is one of those lingering questions about, yeah, what is it with those headaches? What makes them a part of this group? And they don't know each other. It's also worth pointing out that they're being given assignments. Like, I think Clive Owen is giving a music lesson. This Italian guy is just riding around on a Vespa. I mean, the other guys <laughs> looks like he's in some really boring board meeting. They have normal lives, but every now and then, yeah, they get a text that says, yeah, go kill him. And they do, without question. That said, I don't think that they're actually... I don't think he's a member of the board. I don't think they have day jobs. You know, I don't think they're a college professor by day and CIA assassin by night. No, I think this is their full-time gig. I mean, Jason Bourne had places to go. Why was he giving that kid a piano lesson? That's his son? I have no idea. Maybe he was undercover to kill the kid's parents (laughs) after a period of time. Oh, okay. You saw it differently than I did. I definitely thought that they had dull, everyday lives and just clicked into killer mode when they got the text. Yeah, I I had the feeling that they sit around being Euro trash until they get that text and have to go into action. But I agree with you, Arnie. I do like this sequence. Like, again... Not a whole lot of action going on yet, but I do feel like this is ramping up the danger when you're like, awake all the agents, and you see all these different characters getting ready to go after Bourne. 
And in parallel, we see Bourne finally getting a nap. You know, what he talks about. <laughs> he can't get any rest. No, I, I, I'm not making a joke. I think that it's literally that's done in parallel. Like, he's letting his guard down finally as the danger is rising. And you could take that even further. Sleeper agent. <laughs> quite literally. But, uh, you know, this is where the romance is kind of happening here because they have a really great scene in a diner where she is trying to explain why he knows what he knows. She's like, yeah, I'm observant. I saw that the bartender had a gun or whatever, but he's like, no, I'm really observant. I know how, what his weight is. I know where to get a gun. I know how fast I can run in this cold. They have a moment where they really recognize that he is superhuman and she has a lot of empathy for his anxiety over that. And it's all a tease, right? I mean, we're now... 45 minutes into this movie, we've had a little bit of chasing going on, but it's really going to come to a head once they reach his apartment in Paris. And might I just say he has much better digs than the TV movie had. But no. <laughs> that's where we finally have a Treadstone operative waiting for them. And they really build up that suspense first. She's trying to take a shower. There's no hot water. He knows there's something around. He's like carrying a knife and trying to hide from her. And then finally, when it happens, it's not subtle. It's a guy with a big machine gun breaking in. <laughs> yeah, he's right out of Die Hard swinging down with uh... a... <laughs> John McClane move, machine gun on a rope. But yeah, no, I really like the buildup of this because, yeah, there's a lot of open space. There's a lot of yeah. windows. There's a lot of potential for danger to happen all the time. I know these people are snipers. I'm like, where's the bullet coming from? Every time someone's standing in front of a window, I'm wincing. And so, yeah, they're playing with all this stuff with the sink. I really... It's almost ridiculous when we see what the threat is and a relief because we're like, oh, yeah, Bourne can take this guy. <laughs> yeah, he takes him out with a ballpoint pen, which always made me wince when I saw that. I remember wincing in the movie theater when I saw that. Like, that just seems so painful. True story. I once saw a kid drive Oof. a pen. <laughs> I'm, already, I'm already cringing. <laughs> yeah, right through his palm. It was one of the most disgusting, disturbing Oof. things I've ever seen. And so I have no illusions that pens aren't deadly weapons. They are. I've seen it. But yeah, this is cool. And I think a signature of the character that he can take whatever's around him and make it lethal is what we like about Bourne. It, it shows a MacGyver cleverness to him. Yeah, the ballpoint pen. I just love it because it's the exact same kind of pen I used for a long time. And I've seen that pen in media being used to give tracheotomies and here. But the pen is just a diversion. He, it looks like a really bad wound when he shoves it up the guy's knuckles. But really, he takes the guy out with an elbow to the face and a broken arm. Well, the guy kind of takes himself out eventually. He's going to jump off the balcony and commit suicide. Yeah, I love what Marie says. He ran out the window. Why would he do that? Well, why would he come busting in with a machine gun and a knife <laughs> is a bigger question, I think. Yeah, well, I think what she's saying is why would someone that tough choose to kill himself? But the answer is obvious. He doesn't want to be made to talk. He knows things that Bourne needs to know about himself, and rather than reveal that, he's going to take himself out. And so they're left with only a few clues here. You know, he left a bag with both their pictures in it. She knows that she's a wanted woman as much as Bourne is a wanted guy, and how do they even know that he got in her car? She's really freaked out by this, and it's going to lead to her finally having to make a decision. And again, I love that this character is an active character. She's not passively always being attacked. She has to make choices about, am I going to keep 
staying in danger. You know, she could have dropped Bourne off at this apartment and been like, thanks for the 20 grand. But she keeps making the decision. I am invested in this guy. I think this guy could be a lover and I want to see him get a happy ending. I think there's a lot of reasons why, but we really have a nice moment here where she runs off to the liquor store to to get a little bit of liquid courage, but she finally makes the commitment once they get to the train station and he dumps off the bag at the locker that she's going to stay in the car, that she is not going to abandon Bourne. Yeah, she stays in the car in a car ride that I might get the hell out of. And we've reviewed quite a few car chases on Now Playing. Last year, we did all the Fast and Furious films, and those are films that live and die by their car chases. This is why I'm talking. This is more grounded. This is not a Fast and Furious chase. <laughs> no, there's no NOS and no flames <laughs> coming out. Nobody on, like, bungee cords swinging <laughs> off bridges and flying into other cars. No tanks, unfortunately. No parachuting cars. Yeah, what is this? There's just this little economy European tiny-ass car going down a flight of stairs. Is it a mini, or is that just like a standard European car? That's my question. <laughs> it's mini to us Yanks. Yes. But... This chase is one of the best action movie chases, like, since the French Connection, you know? I think this is an awesome, awesome car chase. Around the same time, they remade The Italian Job. It has nothing on this. Yeah, I think The Italian Job was trying to do this, and I don't remember that movie that well to do any kind of comparison. I will say this, by having less action overall, when you get it, you feel the rush more. It makes the moments when they do come all the more special. So I don't know if this is like the greatest one ever, but it feels great because we've just had so much tension and so much personal interaction. It feels fresh. It feels exciting just by being something different. Yeah, but it also is really exciting. I mean, with all those cop cars coming after him and they're in a car that should not be able to outrun them. And it shows that he doesn't just have fighting skill. He's got a lot of different skills locked up in that head of his that he could take this little stick shift and drive on the sidewalk, do bad U-turns <laughs> into oncoming traffic. I love when he goes down the staircase. Yeah, exactly. You know, whatever it takes. The only thing it missed was some pedestrians diving out of the way. <laughs> I saw one. There was like one guy, but uh, they cut real quick. This movie is cut real quick, but... Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. It's a good chase. I don't think that I have a problem with any action scene in this movie. Yeah. And meanwhile, we get quite a few scenes with Wambosi, and I do like this actor a lot. I know him primarily as Mr. Echo from lost we've talked about him on the show though many times before he's he just keeps doing stuff that we've done he was in thor the dark world and gi joe 2 and i remember him from the remake or prequel to the thing whatever you want to call it yeah i find him very charismatic in this the cia says he's a problem but he seems like a truth talker he's saying people are trying to kill him and they are i mean he's going to the morgue they're saying born's dead he's identifying that there's no bullets in this body so it's not him he's completely right in everything he's doing and he's still going to be killed for it yeah, the CIA has got to feel bad about this because to kill him in some way confirms 
that there was someone always trying to kill him. And they wanted him to seem paranoid and that he had problems internally. But in fact, it's going to be the professor from the roof taking him out in just a couple of seconds. I mean, he just has like a half second by a window and bam. I was surprised Wombosi was actually taken out. I thought for sure... His death, you know, the CIA is going to put that story out there to try to bring Bourne in. They figure if he sees that Wombosi's dead, that he'll come back in because that was his mission. I thought that was going to be a fake story, that Wombosi was going to turn up, but he's he's gone at this point. Yeah, and there's worse evil here. Again, he's he might have been a bad guy, but the real bad guys are the ones trying to get Bourne. And so now that there's killers involved, you have to think of them as bad guys. You have to think of Clive Owen as someone that you really do not want to encounter. Yet I do want to see him square off against Bourne. I will say my one, I don't know if it's a complaint, but the movie lacks suspense for me because from these early scenes, as soon as I see him fight with a Bic pen, I feel like there's nothing he will not emerge (laughs) victorious from. And on a film like this, I should believe it's the first film, right? And they didn't make it with the intent of a franchise. It became one, but they thought they were making one film. I should believe he could die. I think it's very plausible that at the end of this film, he would be killed for his knowledge or lack thereof. But because he comes across so self-assured in every single situation, I never have that feeling. Instead, I'm sitting back and I'm like, I want to see him go up against Clive Owen because I want to see him kick more ass. And that's not what this film is for, so it's feeding me the wrong impulse. But it's nonetheless what the film is telling me through Damon's performance and the action they're giving. Yeah, Bourne is such a badass, I never do feel like he's in much danger. Maybe that's because, like, one of the agents is wearing glasses, and it's hard for me to think of him as a tough guy because of his little spectacles he has on, but... Is that the professor? Yeah. I feel like Bourne is never in any real danger here. He's always going to come out on top. I'm okay with that. One, because I did read the novel, and that was the characterization of Ludlum. He was the number one guy. You never got the sense that there was anything he couldn't do that was never a part of it that he was threatened in any way. You worried for him more because you wanted to know who he was and that existential crisis of what he might have done. That's what you worried about. But in these moments, no, I don't think that we're meant to be fearful that Damon could die. I also think that to help Damon, who hadn't played a lot of tough guys, they didn't want to undercut him and make him look weaker. I think they did everything they could to make him seem invincible. Well, it certainly worked because I always feel like he's in control. You know, the next movie is called The Born Supremacy. I think he's pretty supreme right here. Yeah, but he does need Marie. I do like that they work her in here. She's the one. He's got all these plans about, all right, go into the hotel, take this many steps, <laughs> call me over here, blah, 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 blah. He's got it all like a hundred steps ahead. And she's like, yeah, I just went and asked the concierge and he thought I was cute. So he gave me the phone record. <laughs> Yeah, because there's this John Michael Caine character is a name that he found in that safety deposit box. He's trying to find out who he is. And so, yeah, they have to go to that hotel to find out that he died two weeks ago. Yeah, and I do feel like this is a little in-joke that if you read the novel, Kane is definitely one of the aliases that Bourne goes by. And so it's not this Kane. It's an entirely different thing, but they needed to work Kane in here somehow, kind of like the thing in the hip. You just, some beats you just got to hit. And so, yeah, we have this 
second job, that he's a, a merchant, a shipper, that he works at the security firm or something, Alliance. Was that a job he did? Is that like <laughs> teaching piano lessons? I thought he was doing <laughs> research on yachts so he could get close to Wombosi. He was. That's the whole point of it, is he did take a day job, or he was posing as a buyer in order to learn about Wombosi's boat, which apparently was for sale even when Wombosi was alive. He was trying to sell that boat. And so by posing as a buyer, he got the pictures, he got the schematics. And again, like Stuart already said, it was Bourne who decided the hit should be on the boat. So this was all his research. He went up there and he was seen as a wealthy client is why he was greeted with open arms. Oh, okay. I can see that. It does beg that question about what Clive Owen is doing at that piano, though. I'm like, what could that possibly pay out to be in the assassin business? But we won't know. Clive Owen has all of two minutes of screen time in this movie. But yeah, we have Bourne really trying to uncover the murder he did, which is, again, slightly fruitless. He's leading the CIA on a chase, but in the end, he's going to be told what he did. So he never really deduces too much. But it's still fun watching him flirt with Marie and eventually go out to the French countryside, some more pretty scenery, and break into a house. And, you know, I was thinking, did Shane Black do this? It's obviously Christmas. Well, you know, there is a redemption story. There is a Christ metaphor that can be worked in here if you want to. Can your sins be forgiven? Uh, Can you be reborn? I, I do think that is the promise of Christ. And if you like that kind of stuff, here it is. There's a tree with lights on it. But uh, <laughs> it's not super important to, I think, where this is going. What we're really seeing here is that Marie has a lot of contacts because she has lived life on the road for the last decade. She just knows people. And so she thinks that they're safe by going with a guy that Jason has no connection to. But she also thought they were going to an empty house and did not know that she would be running into what must be an old lover that doesn't seem to like her very much. And his kids. <laughs> well, he is he married? That That's how I took it, is that he's married. He is married. And so the question I had is, was she his lover while married? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. I agree. It, <laughs> it is France after all. Yeah, well, and it's just life on the road. I mean, you know, people do what they do and they think that it's a short-term commitment. And I like that it's an unexplored identity. That she has a mysterious past, too, that we don't know entirely, I think, helps her feel like a comparable character to Jason. This guy Eamon, though, this actor does not have much to do but i just love it when he says as an aside to his kid and thank goodness mommy's away <laughs> yeah i love that one matt damon ends up like pushing him on a swing it's very very awkward here and again they were hoping that they could just crash at an empty farm and instead they've got to pretend that this is just business as usual and maybe it is for marie it sounds like she gets into a lot of trouble and we get a little bit more hint of Bourne's backstory here he's up in the middle of the night like standing over those kids like knowing where this film is going you know watching over them making sure they're okay again wondering who are his children and where are they how is that going to play into this yeah you're right i hadn't really put that together but his preoccupation with protecting the children fits with why he didn't kill the african warlord that's a good point i hadn't even thought about that i don't know if we'll get that in the future i'd again completely repressed the vietnamese wife and child (laughs) from the last movie and I just took it as he was a protector, and 
he is a guardian angel of sorts, even though he's kind of bringing the trouble with him as well. Well, the, yeah, and this is where the CIA really freaks me out because they do, like, all this data mining and, like, reverse phone searches or whatever gibberish they're going to spout off in that Treadstone office. Beg, borrow, hack, bypass. I don't yeah. care what you do. I'm like, this movie's not dated. Not at all. No, it feels very relevant <laughs> yes. today. They just didn't know it in 2002. Or we just didn't care in 2002. But I like that she, what, lived in five different places in six years. It really does sell her as a gypsy. And this was one of her known addresses. So it was more than a one night stand. Mm -hmm. And I feel, again, if we're not calling this an action movie, I do feel it, it's at least tense. And this may be no more tense than this standoff scene. I, I don't know. There's children being threatened. Innocence. Iman, you know, he wasn't meant to be caught up in this. They're all being sent down to the basement because the dog hasn't returned. That's always bad when the dog doesn't return. I had a memory that Eamon died in this scene. So I was really just thinking he had the bad luck of really picking a bad ex-girlfriend. But no, Damon saves them all. And remember what I said before the plot summary? This was the climax of the film at one point. And that's why he gets the big explosion. He shoots that propane tank, I guess, for cover. <laughs> <laughs> No more explosions ever again. Never. <laughs> Boy. Well, they'd already filmed that one, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, this was going to be the final action scene. I think it's good. I really like this showdown, although it did go against my expectation. I thought we would never see Bourne shoot, and yet he's got this double-barreled shotgun. He uses it to blow up a propane tank. He uses it to distract, but then, yeah, he uses it to shoot this guy in the chest. <laughs> Yeah, that guy, again, I think it's because it's threatening the kids, threatening Marie. I, I don't know if he would have gone to that extreme if it was just him, but I do feel like he wants to protect other people. That, that's my feeling, at least, once we get the reveal what happened on that boat. But I also, you know what you said, Arnie, the, the scenery. I just love the scenery of the shootout. It, you know, outdoors in France with the snow. It's just beautiful scenery to look at. And again, I don't feel like James Bond would be satisfied with a climax in a half-buried cornfield in snow. You know, like this is more pastoral. It's more simple. It's more sparse in general. Their idea is to just do less which is not to take away from it being exciting. It just means that it's not over the top. It's not Schwarzenegger. And I think that that is something to be embraced. I think that that impulse is something that we would see Mission Impossible and James Bond adopt later when those franchises rebooted. Yeah, I remember people were saying that around this time, Bond was over and this is the kind of hero we needed post 9-11, is one that's questioning the government, not one that just blindly follows for queen and country. And this scene here, after he shoots the guy, I mean, he's in the chest, but it's also in the shoulder. The professor lives long enough to, again, talk about the headaches and the look what they take from you. And that's a line that really stuck with me. I couldn't have necessarily quoted which film it was from, but it's just such a powerful line that as he's lying there bleeding, going to die, he thinks about what the cost is of serving, if not his country, at least Treadstone. And this is the point where Marie is stepping out of the picture wisely. It took a lot of convincing, but I do think that once yeah, snipers appear at your farmhouse, it is time to go off with Iman and, and the kids and, and let Bourne do what he's got to do. And although I kind of feel bad because I do feel like 
Bourne is better having Marie babble next to him. Calming, I think is what he calls it. We do want a climax in which it's one-on-one. We want to see him without Marie taking down Treadstone. Do you think he gave her the key to the locker with all the money? I know he only keeps 10000 for himself. No, he, but... didn't he have the bag with him and he just gave it to her? He had the bag, but he also went to the train station that time just to put something in a locker so yeah i think that that's where some of the money is so i wonder if he gave her the key and that's how she moved to greece and opened her little shop yeah she gets a good payday yeah (laughs) i never really got her as the type who if i only had enough money i'd settle down and be a business owner but yeah well (laughs) renting vespas again this seems like something that she could do but i think you're right i think that he gave her enough for her to start life over Meanwhile, he was going to make sure that she was protected. She tells them she's dead. I killed her. She was getting in my way. And he thinks that's enough to allow her to escape unnoticed. Yeah, he takes the professor's phone and calls Treadstone. He sets up a meeting with Conklin. They're supposed to meet at 5.30 p.m. in Paris with no one else around, which, of course, come on, the CAA is not going to follow that. No. Nobody ever follows that. A little... (laughs) Word to the wise, if you're going to do a kidnapping, blackmail, what have you, there's always someone else around. Yeah. But I do feel like he knew that was going to happen. That's why he got those trackers he puts on the van. So I think he wants to find where the local Treadstone office is. Where is Nikki? Yeah, that's what I like about Bourne is that we see how he learns what he learns. He doesn't just magically pop up in a place. He has to figure it out. And we see how he does that by flipping the tables here, that they think that they're going to be spying on him. Meanwhile, he's spying on them, trying to spy on him. And he is able to track them back to the real climax Yeah, with Nikki. I think that that was (laughs) clever, smart, shows this guy is more than brawn. And you want to talk about something topical to see in the Treadstone office, Nikki is doing a mass delete of files (laughs) while Conklin's having a shred fest of like, yeah, Yeah, they know what it's going to take him like two hours to totally break down the office. Mm -hmm. I have to imagine this is business as usual for black ops operations. You know, it's Probably what they need to do. Going back to Oliver North, shredding the documents. Uh, yeah, there's historical precedents before and after. But yeah, I agree. This is quite a moment to get caught with your pants down. And, and Bourne is outside the window. At first, they think the alarms are malfunctioning because they're like, how can this be? But again, he climbs walls. He's Spider-Man. Yeah, he has spider tracers and everything. And this was part of the refilm scenes. Originally, this was a very calm dialogue between Bourne and Conklin But to ramp up the action, they started shouting at each other. And this is where you can't even tell they edited Nikki in from a totally different scene. (laughs) Yeah, she doesn't do much. She just kind of stands behind a server or something. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's hilarious. But uh, I don't need her to do anything more, quite honestly. That's the sad truth of it. It's not like I feel like she's being held back from her character arc. She's, (laughs) yeah, the, the girl that sits at the console. It could just as easily have been Walter Goggins if he was more attractive. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, this is where we're going to find out all that we need to, uh, I guess. Malfunctioning $30 million weapon, and it's underlined if you haven't pieced it together. And I think most people probably knew 80% of this already, just having watched the movie. We are learning that it was born that actually picked the yacht as the entrance point. And again, the flashbacks. It's underlined at this point everyone gets it if there was any kind of question i don't really have any mystery at this point the flashback 
I think the big reveal is that there were children there, and Wombosi's wife was there, and that's what caused Bourne to pause and not go through with the assassination. You know what my question is, and I've seen the sequel now a couple of times, so I know the answer, but I thought when we saw this flash and he remembered the whole Wombosi thing, he got his memory back. He now remembered everything, and this was him having it, because he acts like this is physically hurting him, and we see a whole bunch of flashes and scenes, and while we focus on the Wombosi thing... I thought this was him, you know, discovering his identity, but I guess that's not the case, or at least that's what the sequels are going to retcon, is that he's only remembering Wombosi and nothing else. No, I didn't get the sense that he remembered everything, because by the end of this, he's just like, I'm going to decide who I am. It doesn't matter what I did before. Here's one thing that the miniseries did better than the other one. The miniseries made it clear that he took a gunshot to the head. And so once you understand that, you realize that it's not a matter of remembering a repressed, traumatized memory. Uh, his brain literally doesn't work the way it used to. I mean, he has brain damage. So that bullet went through his cerebellum. He cannot remember those things. They're not going to come back. And that is more clear, I think, in the book and in that first miniseries. Here, because they, I guess, didn't want to bloody up Matt Damon's head too much, I don't know that that was ever clear that a wound caused the amnesia. Actually, what they had on the bonus features is a psychologist saying that he's having post-traumatic stress amnesia based upon his rigorous conditioning and training. It's not the blow-to-the-head kind of amnesia so much as it is hmm. a psychological fugue. Oh, so that's what they're going with here. That's that's interesting. I certainly didn't get that as clearly in this version. So maybe that's why. It's because they've moved away from the concept that a bullet went through his brain. But I do like this fight. It is, again, dialed down and it is very spare. But the guards on the staircase, there's one kind of Roger Moore moment where he's like <laughs> jumping on top of a guy and uses the guy as a cushion falling down the staircase. I don't think it works that way. It's pretty over the top. Yeah, that's a long drop. Like, yeah. Yeah. And this is all added scenery. None of this was here. But it's earned it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I feel like this is how you want the film to end. I don't know mm -hmm. if it was at that farmhouse that would be satisfying that mm, he has this last enough. battle and has to shoot his way out. I just like someone that has to shoot their way out of something. Like, that's a good way to end a film. You know what I would have changed, though? I would have had him shoot his way in. I think after he's told Conklin, you know, go to hell, to then fight the guards on the way out, but he got in without any trouble was a little unusual, but I do like this fight. Well, no, these were all the guys that were running around outside as he was sneaking in because of that diversion he created. Yeah, car alarms. Yeah, he. I, I think he could have climbed down the wall outside. He didn't have to leap down eight flights of stairs on a guy, but it's fun. I'm, I love the scene. Don't get me wrong. It's a great note to end on. The director and Universal were completely right to go back and to do this ending. Not to mention, they told us there was three assassins. So, where's that third one? They tried to fool us. They do a little bit of cutting with Jason Bourne walking down an alley and Mannheim putting the silencer on. And is he going to target Jason? Nope. He's shooting Conklin. I actually guessed this, but yeah, it seemed to make sense that Abbott would just be like, you know, the best way to shut down this program, kill <laughs> you. And we don't feel any remorse. He, I may have said there's no bad guys, but I'm certainly not championing for his exoneration either. Not shedding any tears for Conklin mm -mm. here. 
I mean, yeah. you live by the assassination, die by the assassination. It's good to see Brian Cox grow a pair, you know? I think of him, the same year this came out, he was Striker in X2. And I like to see a little bit of the cold-hearted Striker in his performance. You can tell this is a pickup shot, though, because it's a really bad superimposition in front of that committee, though. I mean, like for no reason, it's just him in a room, but it's superimposed, and it looks really weird. And That actually was not a pickup shot. <laughs> What? They could just couldn't book a room? They said they looked and looked and couldn't find a single room in whatever country they were in that looked like this. So they had to get an empty room and furnish it. Hotels have conference rooms? Come on. Yeah, wow. Okay. Well, it was the rare moment. Oddly enough, the non-action moment was the one where I noticed that it was superimposition and movie magic and took me out a little bit. I didn't even notice. And, you know, it's only bad, I guess, when you look at him from the front when you see the committee in front of him there's no superimposition it's only the reverse shots where it's like <laughs> that is kind of empty i am so glad that this was his final moment though that added stuff on the extended edition where he goes to explain to born in greece why they're letting him live and really it felt like he was inviting him to come back that treadstone was closed and that if there would be a sequel he would just be an agent working for them and it would just be like a james bond adventure there would be no animosity between him and his employers in the future yeah that was that original ending was brian cox saying the world is different and now you can just work on the projects you want and you're well paid yeah, I mean, if you were not making a sequel, or rather, if you were just going to turn this into James Bond, then maybe that would be the way to go. But they have a different mission for the sequels, and I think it works best that we end with Marie and Jason in hiding in Greece to Moby. Yeah, remember when Moby was big? I know, that's how I knew. I was like, <laughs> this hasn't been 14 years since this movie came out. And then I heard that Moby, and I'm like, oh, it has been 14 years since Moby was cool. Yeah, I think I honestly think Eminem killed Moby's career when he calls him out in one of those songs. So it didn't help, but some of those albums also killed the career. Hotel shit album. But I like this song. I think this is the born theme. You know, they use this in all the films. At least it's on all the soundtracks. So it's it's a fun little song. It's got a good vibe to it. I like it that it's not overly upbeat it's you could dance to it but i like there's a little bit more mellow electronica yeah there's a menace to it and i think that's correct you want to leave this not with the sex fantasy of a 007 adventure there there's some paranoia here there's some anxiety even though most of it's wrapped up i definitely feel like we're left uneasy so jacob stewart do you recommend the born identity jacob like I said at the beginning of this podcast, I, I've always held this first film in a certain regard because I do feel like, okay, I didn't know it was all filmed before 9-11. I always did feel like it, again, had that more grounded, maybe we were just afraid to go more fantastical after such a crazy thing became a reality. This seemed like a different direction that action films were going to go. And yes, this there's a lot of drama here, but it, you know it's a thriller. There is action here. There's car chases. There's fights. There's all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, I just also feel it's kind of inconsequential. Like, it washes over me. I, I watch it, and then I forget a lot of the points about it. it. It's a film I haven't thought much about. I really haven't thought much about any of these Bourne films. Is the reason why I haven't seen any of the other ones. But it's a good film. If you're into thrillers, into action films, I think you're going to be satisfied this one. It's a recommend. Stuart. 
First of all, as someone that covered the book, I just want to say I think they've done a great job of taking many things about that book that worked and making it even better. I'm going to go ahead and say my bias is that I think that the screenplay is better than what Ludlum wrote and that Ludlum got lucky that they were able to take what he did and make it even better. And I do think that, yeah, this is a high concept premise that gets by on style and the commitment of the players and is totally satisfying and totally dispensable, if not forgettable. I do think that it is just made to be summer entertainment, even though there were important themes and, you know, we pointed out ways that it ties into the times. I don't feel like that it's so self-serious that you wouldn't just treat it like a night out at the movies. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that we could use more one-off action movies that had a little bit more on the brain. And so I completely enjoy this movie, and it's not disparaging to say that it's just a recommend. It's, it's not a great film. I don't think it aspires to greatness, but it's a great time, and I enjoyed it. So it's a green arrow. Yeah, I definitely recommend this film, and I think it's got a lot going for it. I think that it's better made than the majority of action films that we see, as far as the cinematography, the editing, the acting. There's just a lot of technical things going on here that take it to a notch above the Bond films of the era. I'm thinking about, you know, the later Brosnan ones. We weren't at Craig yet. And I think that there's energy to the fights when they happen. There's only a few in the whole movie, but my God, they're so well done that they satiate the action in me, and I like the mystery. This was my third time seeing it. I again had amnesia. I couldn't remember why he was shot. I couldn't remember why he was in the water. I think my prevailing memory was that horrible thing last week. So I was hooked. I wanted to know what Bourne didn't know. Add Damon in a blockbuster star role, you know, one of his first times really going for mainstream success, not the, as you talked about, Miramax type of films. And I think you've got a winner here. I think I like it better than both of you. I think this is really something special. And I hope that the rest of the series can hold this high a bar. I don't remember. I've seen the first three. I never saw... The Hawkeye one, we talked about doing the retrospective then, then we're like, let's see if Renner really works out. And then, of course, I've not seen the new one. But this is a great way to kick it off for me. I'm excited to see where this series goes and refresh my own memories. And we'll be doing that next week when we discuss the Born supremacy. My memory is it gets better from here. I think it is an improvement if my one theatrical viewing of supremacy holds true. And my memory is, I don't remember if I've seen it or not. <laughs> I've seen it twice. I saw it once in theaters with Stuart, and I saw it once before the Born Ultimatum. And so I don't remember a whole lot about it, though. If you ask me what the plot is, I'm like, Matt Damon, he fights, Julia Stiles is there. I don't even remember Brian Cox comes back or who else comes back. There's two things I distinctly remember about this movie. And of course, I have read the book too. And I'm hoping it doesn't take too much from that preview of my books and Nacho's Thoughts. But you know, another franchise that I'm hoping gets only better with the second one, this Friday, Independence Day, Resurgence. A little behind the scenes magic. We haven't even seen the film when we're recording this, but... 
when you're hearing this, we will have seen the film, recorded a podcast, and it would be on the way to getting edited and out to you, the donors of our spring 2016 donation drive. And with Independence Day, you know, July 4th, right around the corner, that means our donation drive's coming to an end. After that, we've got three weeks of Ghostbusters, and then all these shows go in the vault. We don't want you to miss out. Celebrate your Independence Day with us nowplayingpodcast.com click the banner at the top ten dollars or more you get will smith saves the world three men in blacks two independence days and if you want to add some extra fireworks there twenty five dollars or more you get six 1986 sci-fi films thirty five dollars or more and you can bust some ghosts with us for the next few weeks we hope you join us And before we go, if I can break my arm patting ourselves on the back, I want to just point out today's Born Identity review is our 600th movie review podcast here at Now Playing. Wow, that's a landmark. What do I get for that? To watch Independence Day Resurgence this Friday? (laughs) I quit! (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what? It is an accomplishment, and I am proud of what we've done on the show. That's great we've hit 600, and... Again, thanks for all of those that listen and, and continue to support this show. We do it for you. Yes, especially the donors. I mean, that they are the ones who have got us to the 600th show, so thank you. So, Stuart Jacob, thank you for joining me to talk the Born identity. You bet. And until next week, this is where it started for us, and this is where it ends. Do you remember now? Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Born Retrospective Series. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Congratulations, soldier. Training is over. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new Born movie review leading up to this summer's new installment. You talk about this stuff like you read it in a book. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss the Jason Bourne movies with other listeners. Everyone signs in and out. This is a serious place, serious work. It's not just to come in whenever you like. You're right. You're right. We didn't sign in. You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and when the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. Send them in to follow. Tell them to keep their distance. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other movie series, including The Fast and the Furious, Mission Impossible, Star Trek, Terminator, Predator, and many more. You think that Jason Bourne was the whole story? Sorry, there's a lot more going on here. Treadstone was just the tip of the iceberg. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at NowPlayingPodcast.com. That was a D-track team we sent in there. I don't know what that means. It means they're good at what they do. If you want even more Now Playing reviews, place your order now for the first Now Playing book, Underrated Movies We Recommend. Get reviews of 125 films our hosts love. Now two years we're scribbling in that notebook. You can order the book by clicking the banner at the top of our homepage. Read, David, read. Everything you can get your hands on. I thought maybe we could help each other. How's that? Support from listeners like you. Help keep Now Playing operating. What's this? Well, it's not money I've got. It isn't much, but it's a start. 
I don't need it, you do. Anyway, I'm stuck with you now. I've got an investment in you. <laughs> you can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. I don't suppose it'll do me much good to cry for help, huh? Not much. You can also show your love of Now Playing by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. The link to our Cafe Press store is available on our homepage. Get in the store. There's someone on your tail. Get in the store. Now Playing's Born Retrospective series is edited by Heath and Arnie. I told you we'd clean this up. It will be clean. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. Well, why don't you go upstairs and book a conference room? Maybe you can talk him to death. Now Playing is not affiliated with the makers or copyright holders of this film. The Jason Bourne films are the property of Universal Studios and no infringement is intended. What is he doing? Is it a game? Is he warning us? Is it a threat? The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. Do you really expect me to believe that? <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> I can't believe it myself. How could I expect you to? The insanity is, it's the truth. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't think that's a decision you can make. Jason Bourne is dead. You hear me? He drowned two weeks ago. You're gonna go tell him that Jason Bourne is dead, you understand? Where are you gonna go? I swear to God, if I even feel somebody behind me, there is no measure to how fast and how hard I will bring this fight to your doorstep. I'm on my own side now. Franca Potenta. Potenta. I thought it was Tay. Like, it is not uh, a, in her own language. I looked up a, a like uh, interview in her native <laughs> language, and they called it Franca Potenta. Yeah, I've always said Franca Potente, so there's the American version. <laughs> okay, I did hear the clicks a few times. I don't know if that's what you're talking about, Arnie. No, I don't know what it was. I really don't. It was just... Did you just hear it, though, while Stuart was talking? No, I didn't hear anything while Stuart was talking. Neither did I. Okay. (laughs) Ghost in the machine. (laughs) Is there a fourth person on the call just listening in? No? Like that movie Unfriended. (laughs) I think I saw that one. Is that the one that's all, like, real-time, like, through Skype? Yeah, it's literally like a Skype chat. Yes, I actually rented that movie. It was Isn't it unfortunate? Oh, my God. It's very infuriating. I feel like that was payback for every time you're told to turn off your phone in a movie. You'd be like, oh, yeah? You're going to watch a movie, which is nothing but texting. (laughs) It's like found footage gone to the nth degree of bad. It is the death of that genre, yes. It's the the end game. There can be – you can go no further in that direction. (laughs) All right. But back to Bourne. What were we talking about? (laughs) (laughs) Oh!